Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Amen, and if you have your copy of God's Word, please join me in Psalm 35. Psalm 35, as we continue to make our way through the the book of Psalms this summer, uh, we will not get all the way to Psalm 150 this summer unless Ethan comes and does that for us next Sunday. I'm not going to be able to pull that off. Um, We just sang that it is finished, and yet... Uh, it seems in this life that the battle rages on. Uh, it, is, it is accomplished, it is finished, and yet there is a battle to be fought uh, until Christ returns or calls us home. And so this morning I'm going to speak to you from Psalm 35 verses 1 through 10. Uh, earlier in the week, last week, my goal was to cover the entire psalm. And about Friday at about 1.57, I discovered that I was going to be keeping you here long past pizza time uh, or lunch time. So uh, what we're going to do is look at verses 1, one through 10 this morning. And, and what you'll find, uh, we'll try to complete the psalm, I think, next week. But what you'll find in this psalm is it really lays out in three sections. And we're going to cover section one. And the sections are pretty similar. There's um, this declaration that there's a battle, that there are enemies, and then it concludes with hope, right? So verses 1 through 10, 9 and 10, there's hope, and then verses 11 through 18, with 17 and 18 being verses of hope, and then verses 19 through the end of the psalm with the last couple of verses being verses of, of hope, that, that God will do what we are asking him to do, and we can live with that confidence. So I don't want you to, I don't want you to miss the hope as we navigate uh, some challenging truths in God's word this morning. Why don't we, why don't we pray together, uh, and then we'll dive in. God, we, we love you, and uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not been silent. God, you could have created and just left us to be uh, without any understanding of why we're here or who you are, but, but that's not who you are. You, you created out of love, God, so that, that we could know and enjoy your glory and your presence and God, Satan the tempter has tried to rob us of that, uh, lead us into sin, and we thank you for Jesus who is the Savior and the solution, and for the Spirit who gives us uh, union with Christ such that we can wage this battle with confidence. And we, we pray, God, that you would edify your church as we learn more about that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this psalm is written by David, many of the psalms. Uh, particularly in the first 44 Psalms, are written by David. And and we know that David's life was often filled with adversity and enemy attack, with the Lord somehow uh, enabling him, sometimes seemingly miraculously, to, to overcome the enemy and eventually to become a king, a king over an expansive and expanding kingdom called Israel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's a key chapter in God's word. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord makes a covenant with King David, promising that one day there would be a son who would come in the line of King David, 
who would reign forever and have the Lord as his father. This, this king is Jesus. Jesus doesn't just show up in the New Testament unannounced, right? The, the Old Testament is like a, a giant um, birth announcement, right? This is who you're going to look for. This is what Jesus is going to be like. And one of those mileposts is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And, and we know this king Jesus has come, and, and he is the king from Israel reigning over this expanding kingdom. He's the king like David who was faced with great adversity and malicious opposition as he went to the cross to do the will of his heavenly father, securing salvation for people from all nations who trust in him. And so today's psalm, while it's written by David and likely reflective of the life of David, is is even more so about our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a psalm about Jesus. The Holy Spirit consistently uses David's life as an inspiration for many of the psalms of deliverance, and he did so to tell us about the life of King Jesus, this king who would come and expand the borders of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth and who would never be defeated, not even by a crucifixion. Like David, Jesus, this righteous servant and king, would face unjust attacks and hostile opposition as he sought to do the Lord's will. And and hopefully, uh, as we're going to see, he would stay faithful and steadfast even under attack, even when falsely accused and and viciously attacked. So as we read Psalm 35, we kind of see Jesus' inner voice as he navigates the cruel and unjust assaults that he faces for following the Lord. And the reality is we need the same resolve that Jesus had, right? We, we are also in a battle. And the good news is that if we'll believe in Christ, if we'll be united with this Jesus through faith, the Spirit will change us and give us the kind of resolve that Jesus had as he faced his enemies. And we know that we need that kind of resolve because of what Jesus says in John fifteen twenty: If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, what's interesting is just a few verses after that, he quotes from Psalm 35, 19 to say that they hated him without cause. And if they hated him without cause, they'll hate you without cause as well. The the world is not pro-Jesus. The world is not pro-church. And we live in this wartime mentality that that causes us to, to cry out to the Lord to handle our enemies. So like our king, who was undeterred in the face of opposition, we find in this psalm instructions for us to be steadfast servants of the Lord as well. So how is it that we stay steady in the face of the battle? Let's, let's hear the word of the Lord together. Of David, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me, without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him, let him fall into it to his destruction. And then my 
soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. We see three things, I think, in this section of verses. The first, if we're going to be steady in the face of battle, we're going to be steadfast when the world, the flesh, and the devil want to trip us up and move us away from faithfulness to the Lord, when it's hard to be uh, married in the way that you're supposed to be married, when it's hard to be a co-worker in the way you're supposed to be a co-worker, what do, what do we do? We first entrust the battle and ourselves to the Lord. In verses 1 and 2, David uses the language of both a legal proceeding and a military battle. The word contend is a legal term, and it means to defend or to make a case against someone. And the word to fight, used twice in the second half of verse 1, is a military term that means to feed on someone, to consume someone, or to devour someone. This is not like play fighting. This is this is fighting when the stakes are real, right? You're trying to take someone out kind of fighting. And as, as Wilson says, military language is appropriate for court cases because court cases are like battles. And in verse 2, David calls on God to take up armaments in the fight, to sh- take up shield and buckler, to be protected so that he can go on the offense for David. And as I noted last week, to think in this way, to think about our lives situated in a, a holy war, we've got to be engaged in the actual battle, the unseen battle for the glory of Christ in our lives, in our church, in our 3D group, in the world. We've got to be engaged in this battle for Christ and His glory to shine ever more brightly in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes. We've got to be like David. And in even greater measure, we've got to be like Jesus, doing the Lord's will, no matter how difficult or costly it is. And what did it cost Jesus? It cost him the cross, right? This is why Jesus tells us in Luke 9 to to take up our cross and die daily and follow him. We've got to realize, church, that our ultimate enemy, sin, death, hell, the grave, the forces of darkness, they are against the Lord, they're against the Son, and they're against you. They don't want you to make it. And as we realize this, we will face opposition only the Lord can overcome. The the Spirit doesn't save you to then do it on your own. The Spirit saves you to enable you and equip you by His strength and His power to fight the good fight. So we've got to call on the Lord to take care of our enemies rather than just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get, get the job done. Calling upon the Lord to take care of our enemies doesn't mean, of course, that we can ignore Jesus' command to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. This is, in the Psalms, what is called an imprecatory prayer. You may have just learned a new word. If you did, that's cool. Google it. Check it out. It's an imprecatory prayer where... The enemies in the Psalms are fixed realities. They are enemies of God, and they're going to be enemies of God, and that's not going to change. And so, God, take care of my enemies. And one day, if you're not on Jesus' side, you're going to be taken care of. You may not realize it now, but if you don't belong to Jesus, it's not going to go well for you. If you do belong to Jesus, it's going to go very well for you, because you're going to be with Jesus. It's going to be awesome, right? 
But in the Psalms, David is praying in these absolute terms. These are my enemies. They're always going to be my enemies. So God, you take care of them. It's an imprecatory prayer. So how do we apply that in our lives? Well, those who are going to remain our enemies, those who are going to remain on the, with the forces of darkness, we don't know who they are. So we love our enemies. And yet at the same time, we trust that God will take care of our enemies. One way or the other, he'll either take care of our enemies by saving them and bringing them, them into the kingdom, or he'll take care of them in eternity. But we don't want to be deluded in our faith or in our walk by the temptations of the enemy, by the fear of the enemy. So this is a recognition in Psalm 35 that the enemies are really enemies. Satan is really against you. Your flesh is really against your spiritual progress. The world is really against the church. Satan is really going to try to send people into churches with an anti-gospel to upend the gospel. Satan is really going to raise people up from within the church that you're like, man, I thought they were a hero of the faith, but actually they're trying to undermine the gospel. Paul tells us this in Luke 20. Don't be surprised. Wolves wolves are going to come from without and from within. Enemies are not neutral. They are not to be compromised with or accommodated. They stand against the mission of God in our lives and in the world, and we need the Lord to battle for us, to thwart their schemes, because those who remain enemies, despite our love and prayer for them, they pursue us. Do you see that in verse 3? Chasing us down, hunting us, and they would defeat us unless Yahweh battled for us. We need Yahweh. David knows this. David says his only hope is that the Lord would put his battle armor on and rise, verse 2, for his help. To, to rise and take his stand, to rise and enter the battle and defend him and vanquish his enemy. Clearly the battle is a real battle, even though it's unseen. It's intense. It threatens to obscure our view of the Lord. Some of you this morning are in a battle. I don't know what your battle is, but you're tempted to throw in the towel, you're tempted to quit, you're tempted to just do it the world's way, to be selfish, go home, pout, I don't know. But you know what your battle is. And look at what happens in verse 3. David says, after he's like, hey God, there's a battle. I love what he says in verse 3. Say to my soul. Say to my inner being, say to the totality of who I am, I am your salvation. God, as much as I need you to win the battle, I need to not lose sight of you. As much as I need to win the battle, I need to not forget that I belong to you. Above the noise of the battle, can you identify with David this morning? Above the noise of the battle, he longs to hear the voice of Yahweh declaring, shouting, I am your salvation. Can you imagine Jesus? If this is the inner music of Jesus' life as he heads to the cross, can you imagine Jesus inwardly crying out to his Father as he bears the flogging and the mocking and the spitting and the walking approximately two kilometers with a cross upon his back every step of the way? Say to my soul, I am your salvation. The Father will surely raise me up 
on the third day. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. I, I can imagine those faithful believers in Afghanistan as the American troops were pulled out and the country is imploding and those believers who were not able to get out facing the reality that they would soon see their king saying inwardly and perhaps outwardly, say to my soul, I am your salvation. I can imagine the the mom who is empty of all her strength this morning, facing the enemies of lethargy. You didn't want to get up today. You were so exhausted and sleeplessness. And an encroaching dark night of depression. I can imagine for a moment the Spirit of God who is within you rising up and reminding you that the Lord is your salvation. That's what we need in the battle. Not only that God would win the battle, but that we would not lose sight of the Lord who is our salvation. When temptation to cease our striving for faithfulness comes, church, we've got to remember that he fights for the faithful and we've got to ask him to take the fight to our enemies. We must not forget why we're in the battle in the first place. We are in the battle because we belong to the Lord who is a warrior, who has saved us and is saving us and will save us. Salvation, who gets saved? Desperate people get saved. People who are tired of the fight get saved. People who are worn down by the world and the flesh of the devil get saved. Salvation comes to the desperate. It comes to the dependent, to the needy. And sometimes the battle itself is designed to drive us deeper into the heart of our Savior. My prayer for you this morning, I've been praying it all week, is that some people in this room and online and in the overflow would give up on trying to win the battle in your own strength. That you would give up on trying to win the battle with your wits or your charm or your ability. And instead this morning you'd say, I'm weak. I'm needy, I'm vulnerable, I'm dependent, and I need the Lord. That you would hear the Father say to your soul in a fresh and powerful and clear way, I'm your salvation. I am your salvation. The the praise of men is not your salvation. Attaining the dream that you had in your heart as a young man or a young woman that, that did not come true and is not going to come true is not your salvation. A promotion is not your salvation. Acceptance in the world is not your salvation. Belonging to the Lord personally, that is salvation. And when you have the assurance of the favor and the presence of the Lord, you find fuel for staying faithful in the fight for obedience to God and the proclamation of his glory to the ends of the earth, even as the battle rages on. And in verses four and five, David uses language that lets us know the battle is deadly serious, doesn't he? What do the enemies want? They don't want just to win. They don't want to just rub it in his face. Do you see it in verse 4? They seek his life. They want to devise evil against him in an ultimate sense. They want to take him out. And I want to be abundantly clear this morning. Satan and the forces of darkness don't want you to win and they want your life. They don't want you to align your lives or your attitudes or your ambitions with the will of the Lord. They don't want you to endure to the end. They want to take you out. They want you to look to diversions and distractions rather than being a disciplined disciple. Satan has no interest in you going the distance. 
They don't want us thriving and enduring for the glory of the Lord. Twice in verse 7, we read that they set traps for the servant of the Lord with no reason, without cause. Did you know Jesus was crucified without a real cause? They had no real reason to to crucify him. He was crucified without justifiable cause. And if Jesus, the Messiah that we follow, was crucified without justifiable cause, you can rest assured that Satan will try to get you to stumble into sin. And if he can't do that, he will bring baseless accusations to stop you in your tracks and knock you off course. He'll throw anything at you that he can to take you out of the race. He wants to sideline you. You feel that reality this morning? Satan wants to sideline North Roanoke Baptist Church. And he'll do it by making you tired of the struggle and the fight for faithfulness. How does he do it? He he does it by leading us to define faithfulness as busyness rather than being the Bible-shaped bride of Christ. Satan will make you think, if God is so good and we are pursuing him, then this shouldn't be so hard. You ever thought that? Why is church so hard? Why is marriage so hard? He's got the spirit, I got the spirit, and this is still hard. It's hard because you are opposed constantly by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And until you get to the other side, good luck on it not being hard. It's going to be hard. I've I've encountered some people, man, I just don't understand why church life is so hard. And I agree, it's hard, but have you read Corinthians? It's not easy. This battle is not easy. Satan doesn't care if you work uh, at, I don't know, some accounting firm and and y'all are crushing it and it's going awesome. You're not a threat to Satan. Like, go be profitable. Make widgets and make money. That's great. Satan is not going to be all up in in your business being like, I don't want them to be profitable. Who cares? But I tell you who Satan doesn't want to be profitable. He doesn't want your marriage to profit for the glory of God. He doesn't want our church to profit for the glory of God. He doesn't want you to be a co-worker in your workplace for the glory of God. He doesn't want you to demonstrate supernatural patience when all the rugrats come back next week to the schools and the, and the teachers go back. You know, like, by the way, we need to pray for our teachers and our students as they go back. That they would be able to demonstrate supernatural patience. Satan doesn't want you to, to have victory in pursuing the Lord. Aren't you glad that, that Jesus didn't buy the lie that following the Lord would be easy? Can you imagine if Jesus said, well, man, this should be easy because I'm trying to be faithful to the Lord, therefore it should be easy. I mean, where along the way to the cross would he have just checked out? Jesus did not die for it to be easy. He died to enable us to take up our cross and die daily. Jesus did not die for us to embrace a consumer Christianity where we build an organization based around our preferences and throw a preacher up on the stage for 30 minutes on Sunday and call it church. We are not here to talk about how great the pastor is, the preaching is or isn't, the band is, the brand is, or the programs are. We are here for Jesus who died on a cross to do the will of the Father. He didn't die for consumer Christianity. He died to redeem the church of God, the true church of God, who through union with Christ and the Holy Spirit is doggedly determined to follow the Lord no matter how fierce our enemies, enemies outside and within. So how do we stay faithfully steady in this raging battle? 
First, we ask the Lord to fight for us and remind us that He is our salvation and, and nothing else will satisfy, which means winning the battle isn't optional but essential. But secondly, look at verses 4 through 8. We need to remember our enemies, no matter how menacing, no matter how impressive, no matter how big or vicious they are, they will not have the last word. Your enemies, if you're in Christ, will not have the last word. Your flesh will not have the last word. Satan won't have the last word. The forces of darkness won't have the last word. King Jesus will get the last word. In verses 4 through 8, David prays his enemies would receive divine justice. That they would get what they had planned for him. That they would be the ones put to shame and dishonor. Verse 4, this is the language of everlasting punishment used in Daniel chapter 12 Verse 2, he prays that the Lord would thwart their plotting, that the evil they devised for him would be turned upon them, second half of verse 4, that they would be unstable like chaff being driven away by the wind as they navigate slippery paths in the darkness, all while being chased down by the angel of the Lord, which is likely the Lord himself in verses 6 through 7. Can you imagine being blown like chaff and trying to maintain your footing on a slippery path in the darkness. I mean, that's, that's what David prays of his enemies, that they would have to run away and that as they run away, they would have to slip and fall and be terrorized by God himself. God, take care of these enemies. Banish them in my life. Cause them, put them on the run and demolish them in the process. That's how we ought to pray against the world, the flesh, and the devil. In verse 8, the idea of divine reversal is made plain. Though the enemy sets a trap for the servant of the Lord, David prays the destruction of his enemy will come, verse 8, when he does not know it, as he's trapped in his own net and falls into his own pit. Let's be clear. Those who oppose the Lord and his servants deserve divine justice. They deserve divine retribution. Yet we know that we also were enemies of the Lord before we were his allies. Jesus dies to rescue his enemies. He, he asked the Father, and we'll see this more next week, to forgive them from the cross. The justice that Jesus prays his enemies will receive is a justice that he took upon himself for those who will believe. So rather than justice falling upon us, it would fall upon him and he would rise so that we could be justified through him. Jesus dies to liberate us from Satan's schemes and deliver us into the work of serving the Lord. And on the third day, the very trap that Satan thought he had set for Jesus, I love this, it came clapping right back on the enemy, didn't it? The resurrected Jesus, did he not become proof that Satan and all the forces of darkness and all who say that their side will face, excuse me, he he became the proof that Satan and all the forces of darkness and all who stay on their side will face divine justice in the fiery pit forever. The resurrection is what allows us to sing, it is finished. The resurrection is the proof that the battle is won, that Satan's fate has been sealed. And that means, verses 9 and 10, in closing, that we can look forward to a full-body celebration of the Lord's deliverance. We, We were given these bodies to glorify God with. And sometimes we talk about death as though that is the final victory 
But really, the final victory is in the general resurrection from the dead. We were given hands and bones and feet and eyes and mouths, all to be oriented to the praise of God. And Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection who proves that all who trust in him will have that day in the future. And in verses 9 and 10, David anticipates the day of the demise of his enemy, the day that he sees it. On the day his enemy is caught in his own trap and consigned to his own pit, then, do you see the then in verse 9? Then I will rejoice in the Lord and exult in his salvation. I imagine Jesus and the Father shared a little moment in the tomb together on the third day. Don't you? Jesus bore our sin to Calvary. He was buried, dead, and he's in the tomb. They've wrapped him in the linens. He takes the linen off, folds it up. And I just imagine for a moment just Jesus and the Father rejoicing. It's done. The Father did it. He raised his son from the dead. Satan's temptation led to sin which brought death into the world. But praise God, our Savior faced every enemy faced every category of temptation and never gave in along the way and he died to remove death and sin and conquer Satan and the resurrection proved it had happened and it proves it still today. Which means, like Jesus, we can rejoice wholeheartedly in the Lord as we resist the devil knowing he must flee because the enemy is conquered. The tomb that is empty means the Satan, that Satan's fate is sealed. When, when Christ returns, our defeated foe will dwell in the fiery pit forever. And all of our bones will say, as the psalmist says here, O oh Lord, who is like you? And the answer, of course, who is like the Lord? No one. No one is like the Lord. And, and certainly, we are not like the Lord. What are we? Verse 10, do you see it? We are poor and needy. We could not overcome the devil's schemes, but God came and did it for us. Praise God, the King of glory became poor so that we could have the riches of God. And for those who now belong to Jesus, for those who join in the battle for the glory of God to be known and the will of God to be done in the world, a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, the day of judgment will be a day, get this, of vindication. In the day that King Jesus returns, those who have been fighting with Him and for Him and by the union of the Spirit with Him, in that day, the foolishness of following Jesus, the foolishness of prizing every jot and tittle of His Word, of resisting temptation, of dying to self, of serving others with no need to be seen, of patiently loving your spouse, of patiently caring for an ailing parent, of being mocked in the locker room or backstage for following Jesus, of giving generously for the sake of people who aren't even born yet, of learning new songs, of worshiping in a gym, of setting up and tearing down chairs. There is a day it's going to all make sense and it's going to lead to more joy than you could ever imagine. And you will, in your resurrected body, see your king and say, oh Lord, who is like you? Every sacrifice was worth it. Every moment of despair was worth it because I have the Lord. Are you living for the Lord this morning?
The only way to live like this is by looking to the cross with confidence that your enemy's fate is sealed and then ahead to the day of the Lord's return knowing that sin, death, and Satan will bother us no more. One day soon, I don't know when, but it'll happen suddenly and it'll happen quickly. All the saints will rise to to delight in our great saving God who is beyond all compare. And this is possible. It is all possible and it is all true because Jesus is the one who fulfills this psalm perfectly. He remains faithful as he endures the salt of the enemy on the way to the cross. And on the third day, God his Father raised him up. It seemed he was a poor wretch condemned to a cruel Roman cross. But Jesus saw to the other side and the salvation that the Lord would provide. He believed that the Lord would raise him up that Satan would be defanged, and that our salvation would be secured. He and all of his bones would say, verse 10, bones that had three days prior endured the cross. He would say, O Lord, who is like you? And if you this morning are in Jesus, you can serve the Lord with the same sort of resolve and steadiness and assurance as Jesus did. Without the Lord, however, we have no hope. For verse 10 confirms we are poor and needy. We are tired and we are vulnerable. But in Christ Jesus, what does Paul say? In Romans 8:37, we are more than conquerors. It's not just that we win. What does it mean to be more than conquerors? How do you be more than a conqueror? It's not that it's just that you win, you get God and you are delivered into the praise of this great God. We are more than conquerors knowing that the Lord is one. He will raise us up to rejoice in His salvation on the last day forevermore. So we can be steadfast no matter what we face as we serve the Lord. Would you pray with me? God our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth that Jesus has run the race in our place, that he's made an end of our enemies, and that in the battle we can be confident, we can be courageous, not because of us, but because of him. Lord, I pray that you would join us with Christ in a special way by your spirit. God, that anyone who's in a battle this morning that's raging and has that confidence that you can defeat the enemy, but the enemy seems to be winning. God, I pray that they would hear you say to their soul, I am your salvation. And if there's any here this morning that doesn't know that, that hope, that truth, and have that confidence, God, today would be the day of salvation. That they would leave sin and death and hell behind and take up life everlasting through faith in Jesus. God, have your will in your way as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.